is the big ponder. My name is Kiran Rockwell, and I grew up in Falls Church, Virginia, but now I live in Berlin. And one of my notable firsts was the first time I had a solo song in a musical in my high school. Uh, I was definitely a theater kid, and I had done all the shows, and I had worked really hard, and I wasn't good, but I was enthusiastic. And so my junior year of high school, my theater director gave me this short solo in Man of La Mancha that was the Barber song. And all it was was, I am a merry barber and I go my merry way. And it was maybe 30 seconds and the crowd loved it. And I never got another solo again. When we're trying something for the first time, it is very rewarding for the brain. It's very reinforcing. I think the brain just loves to learn and create new connections. And that happens through experience. And it especially happens through novel experience. On this episode of The Big Ponder, we're talking about firsts. How does it feel to perform surgery for the first time or get arrested in a foreign country? And what does it take to bring something new into this world? For The Big Ponder in Berlin, I'm Susanna Edelbaum. And I'm Monika Müller-Kroll. My name is Michael Urban, and I'm a screenwriter living in Los Angeles. The thing about starting a script is that's really the easy part. And it's actually not uncommon for a writer to write something, a first act, for example, or a first scene, that's really great. Um, so my name is Dr. Inna Hussein. I am um, the section head of laryngology here at Rush University Medical Center in Chicago. It's a little bit intense, to be honest, to do your first surgery. Um, it kind of puts everything that you've been training towards kind of moment to shine, right? So people will, you know, myself included, will naturally fall out of love with their scripts as they're working on them. There's definitely a certain amount of feeling nervous, like what if I can't live up to what I, I thought I was destined to do, right? What if I'm not good at this? When you set it up, it's it's fun. The problem hasn't really kicked in, but by the end of act one, it kicks in in a way and they have to start solving everything. So from a writing perspective, beginnings are easy. You know, um, I always say like, it's very humbling for a patient to trust you to do surgery on them, right? And so with that, there's a lot of respect that you have for the patient and the human body, but that also puts a lot of pressure on you, right? Even in terms of this episode, we weren't quite sure how to kick off talking about firsts. So we chose a surgeon and a screenwriter, two people we thought we could learn from, because they definitely know how to get from A to B to C without getting stuck along the way. I don't remember the exact first first scene. Screenwriter Michael Urban barely remembers his first ever movie script. It's been a while, about two decades. The first script that I do remember, I had this big unwieldy premise about this guy who has this terrible life. And so he decides to bring a lawsuit against God. All of the opening um, 
sequence was about a guy just being punished, just being uh, unrelentingly punished by life. And that was that was the fun of it. But, you know, then you get into the nitty gritty of like, well, how do you actually sue God? And there was no good solution to it. Needless to say, his first project didn't make it onto the big screen. But a few years later, Michael got a lot of attention for co-writing Saved, a teen comedy that premiered at the Sundance Film Festival in 2004. Now a senior lecturer at the American Film Institute, he's constantly confronted with other people's firsts, his students' first ideas, and their struggle to make them work. Sometimes they totally understand exactly what it is that they're doing. They'll say, okay, this is about a bad breakup that I went through, and I'm telling it as a demonic possession story, right? Like, okay, sure, that, I, I get it. Natural, it makes sense. But sometimes they have no idea that they're writing about their relationship with their parents, right? But they they discover this along the way, that that they have some anger, they have some issue that they're trying to work out. And for me, at the beginning of the process of writing, Once you know what it is that you really want to say, you get clear about what you're doing and you can make everything else fit that bill. Michael, what's a good example of an opening movie scene that really works for you? What comes to mind? There's this movie that came out a few years ago called Other People. And in it, um, Molly Shannon is a mother and she is dying of cancer. And the movie begins after she has died. And the family is gathered around the mother and they're grieving. And then the phone rings and voicemail picks up. And they can hear on voicemail this woman Uh, calling and saying, hey, Molly, I, I heard you were sick. I hope you're feeling better now. Anyhow, oh, yeah, I'll have a Crunchwrap Supreme and a Diet Pepsi, please. So there's this like, woman who d does not know that she's calling a dead person. And I love that. That to me is like an amazing, amazing opening because it is so like life. The work is a matter of life for a surgeon in training, which means getting it right the first time. I wasn't there by myself. I definitely had a senior resident as well as the attending, but the primary steps were kind of in my control. Dr. Inna Hussein is an otolaryngologist. She performs surgeries related to the ear, nose, throat, head, and neck. Her first time as the lead in an operating room took place during her second out of five years of residency. The idea was starting with kind of the neck incision, right? So perfectly placed in a skin crease so that the patient wouldn't really have a really bad scar afterwards. Um, dissecting through the tissue, um, helping to guide my assistants in terms of what I needed them to retract so that I could see the anatomy. And then just kind of in my mind running through where do I expect, you know, the carotid artery to be? Where would I expect, you know, certain nerves? Where How can I preserve all of those for the patients and really just remove the lymph nodes that we're worried may contain cancer. But even something so precise and nerve-wracking eventually takes on a somewhat normal quality. By my fourth year, I felt very comfortable in my role. Um, I would say that, yes, there's definitely cases where I still felt pretty nervous about it. But, you know, when you get to work at six and you leave at six and you do the same thing every day, you feel pretty comfortable with it. And now you guide and prep residents who are about to perform their own surgeries for the first time. What kind of advice are you giving them? 
So a lot of times we're just so eager to get in there. It's kind of like rushing in, but I actually help them kind of take a step back and say, let's talk about what we're doing. Let's set up the plan ahead of time. And then we kind of ease in with just the basic cells. So a lot of the surgeries I do now are endoscopic, meaning through the mouth. And so funny enough, when I first have a resident, we actually start talking about just the very basics, right? So very basics of how do you protect the teeth? Then what are kind of things in terms of where the breathing tube is positioned before we even get to what would be considered the real surgery? So I actually really believe in building those foundational skills because they help you overall be a better surgeon if you are really good at your basic skills. My name is Natalie DeTillo. I'm a clinical psychologist at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston and instructor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. We talked with Natalie about the big picture, what happens mentally and physically when we experience something new. And I don't think we can talk about um, what happens in our brains and bodies when we do things for the first time without talking about dopamine. It's sending chemical messages to our brain about what's happening in our body and in our environment. And it's often associated with reward, but it's a little bit more than that. It actually also fosters motivation and motivation to learn. So reward or the anticipation of some sort of payoff is really what drives our motivation to do anything. You heard her. Anything. Like jumping out of a plane or into an ice-cold winter lake. There's a Canadian author called Jessica J. Lee, and I read a book by her, and we had a reading at our bookstore. She was swimming throughout the year, and she wrote a book about it. And I was jealous. I was like, ah, it's my Berlin. It's my Brandenburg, in a way, and it's my lakes. And I haven't been in the water in winter or autumn. And yeah, I was jealous, and I thought, okay, I can do that. This is anne katrin Grimm. For years, she co-owned a bookstore in Berlin. Shortly after reading Lee's book, Turning, she took her first winter plunge. So I'm used to these uh, physical challenges, but swimming in winter uh, is something that I'm afraid of, or I was afraid of. And so do you remember the very first time? I just uh, decided, or I made the choice, okay, today is the day. So I went on a Saturday, I went to a lake in the city and I just decided okay I just have to get undressed and go in the lake swim for just maybe two minutes one minute doesn't matter and then come out and then see how it feels and that was really really hard <laughs> were you by yourself uh, no in the beginning I was not because I was so afraid so I always had a friend with me um, but it worked out and it was The best I ever did, actually. So I just walked in the water, and within 20 seconds, I was swimming. Wow. The body is able to deal with that cold water temperature. So I knew that nothing could happen to me. Nothing really bad, like drowning or having a heart attack, but... Your uh, hands and your feet really hurt and it, it's painful like the in winter it's like ice on your skin yeah so it feels really it is painful it's like getting a tattoo um, but afterwards you are the happiest person in a way when you come out of the water it's you feel just totally hot 
there is no sun, it's really cold, it's even raining sometimes. But you have five minutes to get changed because then your body temperature cools down, I think, up to one and a half degrees. And then it is a process of at least 30 minutes to get normal again. So you never stopped. You still do this every weekend. Um, because I have this urge. And every Saturday, I, I am sure I have to go swimming. And probably it becomes an addiction. So you don't have to think about if you want to do it or maybe you feel too lazy or whatever. It's, you're addicted to it, so you have to do it. And it makes you happy. And it, I guess it makes you proud. You swim in the really cold water And you deal with like people who walk around and take pictures of you and it's really annoying. Like it's really no fun. But you are the one that afterwards sits somewhere, has a coffee and is like, okay, you are all in your big winter suits and jackets. But I was actually in the lake five minutes ago. Curiosity is naturally rewarding to the brain. Here's psychologist Natalie DiTillo again. I call it the great neutralizer. It's the thing that allows us to step out of fear and lean into an experience and just see what happens. Mike Lawler is a criminal justice expert who lectures at the University of New Haven in Connecticut. He's always been a curious person. Back in 1980, Mike was a student in Slavic and Eastern European studies. That's when he visited Berlin and a couple of cities in Poland for the first time. At the time in the U.S., the superpower confrontation, the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union, was the main news topic. And, and so it was fascinating to me. I had always planned a, a for some type of public service career, and it seemed like a natural to just better understand this part of the world. Fast forward about 40 years. Nicole Weber, born and raised in Chicago, has a time of her life in Berlin. I, don't, I can't even put into words the feeling of the city and um, the emotions and the beauty and the ugliness as well. Just everything that is Berlin that is not the U.S. <laughs> the Berlin Mike first visited was a divided city. And the day that came to an end on November 9th, 1989, he was watching the news in the U.S. and decided to call his good friends Andreas and Gabi in East Berlin. I said, here, listen, and I held the phone up to the television, and, and Ted Koppel said, you're looking live at a scene that most people thought they would never see in their lifetime. The Berlin Wall is open. And I remember, with some disbelief, he said, you know, Gabi, Gabi, die Mauer is often, right? <laughs> and, and, and so I got to break the news to a guy who literally could have leaned out the window and, and, and seen it firsthand. Mike has a couple notable firsts. But we'll get back to this later. An unexpected phone call from her best friend actually brought Nicole to Berlin for the first time. And Maddie called me one day uh, out of the blue to see if I wanted to join her and her partner for a concert. And my first thought was, yeah, of course, where is it, it going to be in California? And um, she kind of just said, we'll pay for your ticket. It's in Berlin in about a week. So... The concert they just couldn't miss was Moderate, a techno trio from Berlin. And I flew in on a Thursday night, and I flew out on Monday morning, and that's all it took. 
So you really had a pretty intense weekend. Yes. Her first taste of the city left such a huge impression that Nicole moved to Berlin three years ago. I felt that immediate connection and longing to just want to start a life there because there's so much to do and so much to see. I just I knew there was more and more and I wanted to experience that. I wanted to keep living that weekend and now I get to, which is amazing. Well, I get to feel that sensation of excitement and connection and acceptance. Back to Mike Lawler. It's March 1980. He's 21 years old, a master's student visiting Poland for the first time. He and his friend Val spend a few days in the city of Gdansk. Uh, there was four of us, me and Val, and uh, the, the married couple that we, were, we had been staying with. The guy's name was Leszek. It was six o'clock in the morning, and they were about to take a plane to Krakow, when Mike observed an interesting scene. And, uh, and I noticed across the street that there was a very long queue of people. And I asked Leszek, I said, what is that? You know, there, there might have been a hundred people standing in line at six in the morning. And uh, he said, oh, there's a rumor that there will be meat at this store today. And the people are queuing up in the hopes that they'll be able to buy some. Because at the time, meat was actually rationed in, in Poland. It, it was a very uh, hot commodity. Mike took a photo of the people waiting in line. A police officer who was directing traffic noticed him and walked over. She started to question him. Leszek came over to inquire, you know, is there a problem? And the police officer asked Leszek, she asked for my passport, which I showed her, my U.S. passport. And, and she asked Leszek whether I spoke Polish. And unfortunately, he said no, but he speaks Russian. And there I was trying to explain myself in Russian to a police officer who was suspicious about why I, an American, was taking photos of people standing in a, a line. And, you know, she told us she had to call her superior and we would have to wait for another officer to arrive. And we did wait. It was about an hour. And when the senior officer arrived, he asked her a few questions and uh, put the both of us in the police car with her and drove us to the local secret police headquarters. So now I'm talking to the, the police and, 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 you know, in order to travel to Poland at the time, we had to obtain a visa. And with the visa came a list of regulations, uh, of things you're not allowed to do, and including a list of things you were not allowed to take photographs of. And not on that list was people standing in a queue in front of a meat store, right? And so I was trying to explain this to the police. And, and one of them said to me, you know, I said, well, it's not actually prohibited. And the officer said to me, well, it's prohibited now because I said so. Which is almost like a classic police officer thing to say. But you realize there, in that moment, I had no recourse, right? I couldn't really appeal to anybody. I was... I could be detained. I think the rule at the time was up to 90 days without charges being filed. The reality set in when they brought us back to the what turned out to be a jail cell and, and the bars slammed behind me. And at that moment, I realized I'm here until they decide to let me go. And that could be an hour or two. That could be a decade or two. In the end, Mike was released from prison within 12 hours. 
but the authorities confiscated his film and held his passport for another day. Even though he was ultimately okay, this Cold War experience has stayed with him. In the end, I had a very long career and still have a career in criminal justice. And I, I like to tell people that my very first criminal justice experience was as a prisoner. There's a lot of women doing things in the world for the first time. And that's hugely exciting. This is psychologist Natalie Dottillo again. Part of that just has to do with opportunities that have been available to us. But I think it's, it's a matter of just gaining a track record of success in some of those domains and having models for us to look at and uh, emulate. I feel delighted that I have that confidence of myself and confidence of my sisters who are really like me, that we have to be a role model so also other uh, sisters can join. Sitona Abdallah Osman was the first ambassador to Germany from the Republic of South Sudan. The challenges even before to come to Germany, actually in the uh, deployment, there is a lot of rejection from our ambassadors. That's why we have to, uh, to take for the first time a female and especially for uh, a places like Germany, because that is first world. That's what they think, that maybe will not succeed. When Osman was being sent to Germany in 2012, South Sudan had only achieved its independence from Sudan a year earlier, making it the world's youngest country. But Osman was working for both South Sudanese statehood and women's rights in the region long before that. Her efforts go back to the late 1980s, during the Second Sudanese Civil War. So I became director of women and child welfare, and that is in the refugee camp at that time. So from there, we have worked really for the women's rights and how women can be really empowered. Because at that time, the men all at war. But for us, with our children, we are staying there. So we have to work hard to see that we have education for our children and we have to have a hospital. So we worked hard for the women to really realize their potential. And these women made change happen. Later, Osman experienced another first. During the writing of South Sudan's new constitution, she helped ensure a mandate that at least 25% of positions at decision-making levels must be held by women. So the patriarchal society, really, they have uh, tried their all level best that our voice cannot be heard. But we tried also to make our voice to be heard. As South Sudan's first ambassador in Berlin, Osman used her voice to promote investment and training and even the development of tourism. Now back in Juba, the capital, she also recalls building an unusual bridge between her country and Germany. I have a contact with some people in Germany for film productions. So I get for them ticket to come to Juba to train for us like four or five people in film production, in editing and in writing. And, and they stayed here for two months training these people. Now we have a film festival always been held by German ambassador here every year for the first time to South Sudan. So I am really proud about that. I think people who are actively bringing new products and new ideas into the world, they aren't really 
afraid of those things. They're very passionate. They're very driven. This is psychologist Natalie Dottillo again. They also have a, a type of expectation in which they ex they're very confident they expect to succeed. I was really very much into Lego blocks. Carsten Herrmann co-founded MMT, a company that specializes in interactive technologies. Usually you have certain set of blocks to build a specific piece, and I always build something else. His urge to create started in childhood, and as a teenager, he got hooked on making websites. It's like a big free space, and you can just create something visible out of nothing. Carsten has a bachelor's degree in multimedia arts. He loves design and technology. For a project in university, he thought, hey, why not build my own screen? So he asked his father, Matthias, who has a solid background in metalwork, for help. And he was really excited about it. And at this moment, you can see the fire came up. Their experiment started in 2009 in the family garage. We were sitting like in a small village with 3,000 inhabitants. We had no fast internet. We had no big companies around. It's just a small village in East Germany. And then the goal was to build a touch screen. And this was really like, uh, I don't know, some people would say we are crazy. And uh, we just tried to do it. And it took several months, but it worked in the end. But it, when it really happened the first time that we were touching the surface and then the software on the monitor next to it, we can see our fingers and the coordinates where they are on the screen. It was like, this cannot be true. No, this was 2009. So nobody was talking yet about large iPads and so on. And we were building like a two by one meter touch monitor. Carsten still gets goosebumps talking about the moment the first version of their hype box was created. Um, this is a transparent display, uh, which you can use to promote physical products with a layer of digital content in front of it. So you can combine it, actually. Some people are saying this is like augmented reality just without the glasses. So because you can see it in real life. These days, they sell their hypebox all over the world. Carsten says a sense of mutual trust plays a big role in their achievements, as does his parents' background. Improvisation is a big part of it. You know, my parents, uh, they grew up in the DDR. And um, the thing is, you didn't have all the products available. So they always had to think about, okay, how can we find a solution without the necessary components? And this experience helped us a lot. One thing I want to address here at this point is that we're always thinking too small. And this is something which uh, I sometimes regret when I look back, uh, because back in 2009, 10, 2011, we really had some innovation on hands. And, you know, Microsoft was also working on a touch monitor by that time. And I visited a trade show of them and their product wasn't working so well like ours, which we built in the garage. And this was completely mind blowing. Looking back on this experience, the 33-year-old advises other inventors. Don't get too much impressed by other companies. Um, in Germany, we have this saying, everybody's cooking with water. And that's really true. And I think everyone has this opportunity to build something really big, even with very limited uh, resources. Carsten and his father are not running out of new ideas yet. Quite the opposite. I don't know if we have enough time to do all of them. Thanks for listening to Firsts on the Big Ponder. The track you're listening to now is by Jonathan Kroll. 
All the other music in the episode was composed by Philip Tomich. We'd like to thank Natalie DeTillo, Carsten Hammond, Setona Abdallah Osman, Nicole Weber, Mike Lawler, Anna Katrin Grimm, Inna Hussein, Michael Urban, and Kiran Rockwell for their participation. This episode was produced by me, Susanna Edelbaum, and Monica Mueller Kroll. You've been listening to The Big Ponder. This transatlantic podcast is brought to you by the Goethe Institute in collaboration with the Bertelsmann Foundation and Rundfunk Berlin Brandenburg. Thanks to all our friends on both sides of the Big Pond that make this series possible.